Welcome to part two of our interview with Always Day One author, Alex Kantrowicz. In this session, he describes his vivid experiences of interviewing Mark Zuckerberg and learning about how he's baked feedback and listening into the company's culture. How Microsoft went from Death Star to joke in months and then reclaimed a new dominant place in the tech world. MS Teams, anyone? We also hear about the fundamental choice facing leaders between building an organization that defends value and grows value for the future. Alex gives us his take on what the leader of the future needs to care about, and we discuss his belief that power will increasingly shift in the form of customer lobbies to us as we aggregate more of our influence using precisely the same tech and ideas as the always day one companies to get more of what matters to us. The visionary uh, leader with the big idea creating the top-down hierarchy, you know, you're kind of saying in the book that that model is dead, that playbook is dead, um, and that that the kind of inventive culture business with the the facilitator leader is the future. Um, How extreme do you think the pressures facing the conventional organizations are with these, with this, how, how fast do you think this is going to spread this culture? Yeah, I mean, I think it will spread faster in some places and slower in others. Uh, it will spread extremely fast in the tech industry. It might take less time. I mean, it might be a little slower in like the medical devices industry, but even those companies are you know being pushed by technology. Like if you agree with the premise that all companies are going to be technology companies at some point, which I think is true, right? Like look at a company like Ford, right? Ford is not going to be a car company. It's going to be working on autonomous vehicles. It's going to be working on the technology inside the vehicle. The vehicle will be the hardware. The most important thing for a car manufacturer is going to be the software. And you can look at this down the line, medical devices, right? You know, the Facebook just this week announced, uh, maybe it'll be a week or two after by the time you put the podcast up, but just this week announced that they had sped up, used AI to speed up MRIs by four times. So, typical process of sitting in an MRI is you just go in and it clinks for a long time and you feel pretty miserable. And there's also utilization concerns because you can only, they, they work slow. So you only get number, a certain number of patients in. And now Facebook has worked on some AI technology uh, to enable them to go four times the speed. So you can ostensibly see four times the patients and it's more pleasant experience for the patient that will keep up. So now think about yourself as the leader of a medical devices company. I know it's very exciting. Um, you have to say, uh, look at the, there's going to be two different types. One who's going to be like, I can, uh, uh, appreciate ideas from everywhere and I'm not the source of all vision. Let's try this Facebook thing out and see if it makes our devices better. And the other is going to be like, I've been working in MRIs my whole life and we do it one way and we're good at it. And I don't want to hear anything else about this Facebook idea. Right. I think in the future, the person who listens to the idea is going to be the one that's successful. So I think this is going to really go across all different, uh, all the different industries. Some old school industries like construction might take a little longer, but even then, you know, I've heard of um, companies that like, well, this is pretty amazing. Fly drones through construction sites to create 3D maps of the work in progress and then match that up to the blueprint. And the most annoying, the, the, the thing for construction that often slows it down is someone puts a pipe in the wrong place. You got to take the whole floor down and put it back up. And if you fly the drone through daily, then all of a sudden you're going to be pretty sure that all the puzzle pieces line up. And so instead of losing, you know, two months redoing the floor, you might only lose uh, a day 
And so the companies that appreciate that type of stuff will probably do better. So yeah, I think this is going to go across the entire economy. I think you think of it as, you know, whether you're a small business or a medium-sized business or uh, a large business. I'll just end with one last story because it's one of my favorites. Um, Coronavirus has definitely caused a lot of companies to have to rethink themselves, go back to the drawing board and really make it seem like it's their first day uh, because they can't, uh, they can't, rely on what they were doing, so they have to reinvent. There's a company in Ireland called Flying Horse Productions. They build stages and props, and they saw the coronavirus coming, and they're like, we're dead. You know, it's supposed to be our big year. Seven-year-old company, you know, good number of employees, and they were like, well, we're going to be out of business unless we reinvent. And um, and so what they did was, they're like, we got to figure out something else to build. They were good woodworkers. So one day, one of the employee's friends comes in and asks them to build them a desk because he was in an office. Now he's going to be working from home. And they, uh, they built the desk. And it was a pretty good desk. So they said, okay, this is what we're going to do. So they say, okay, work from home desks. They sold 2,000 in the first month and helped you know, sustain their company through the crisis. Now they're building things like hand sanitizer stations because they realized people were going to be out in public and probably want to sanitize. And you know, spaces are going to want to be able to create these stations for people to sanitize. So I think this ability, this mindset um, to reinvent yourself is going to be something that's important throughout the economy. It can be technology driven. It can be, you know, crisis driven. Um, But long story short, the idea of always day one is not just applicable to Amazon or Apple or Facebook or Google or Microsoft. It's applicable to everyone. That's that's, uh, amazing to me that Facebook has created the technology for the MRI I was really interested in the culture of feedback that Zuckerberg has created, um, especially knowing that feedback by itself can be such a subjective thing. And oftentimes, you know, a lot of research shows that, you know, when I give you feedback, it's more of a reflection of who I am and, and my own biases versus, you know, the objective kind of assessment of what's going on. But it se- they seem like they've kind of cracked the code there at Facebook. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the first time I go in, to meet Zuckerberg. Um, I didn't know what to expect, but I was prepared for the typical CEO interview. You know, as a reporter, what, what happens usually is we sit down with the CEO or we got like 25 minutes and they very enthusiastically get up and start lecturing about what their new product is going to be. Then there's a PR person in the room that's watching our facial expressions and if there's like a grimace, they say after 25 minutes, they say, thanks very much for coming. You know, we hope to see you again soon. And, you know, if we seem like, you know, neutral to engage, they'll be like, do you have any questions? And you ask one question, CEO repeats the talking point and they say, thanks for coming. We are looking forward to your story. <laughs> but with Zuckerberg, we show up and this is when he was writing this manifesto about what the future of Facebook would look like. Um, and they sent it to us before it was 5,700 word document about like how Facebook would intervene in people's lives and when it was appropriate for Facebook to step in versus when it wasn't. First thing he says is you got any feedback? Like, he's like, what do you think about the document? I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, that's interesting. I thought maybe that's a sales tactic, you know, try to get us to write story, which is like, Oh, Mm -hmm. make them think their opinion actually matters, even though it doesn't. Well, whatever we did the interview and wrote the story and, um, I kept thinking about it. I thought it was such interesting behavior. And I started speaking to people in Facebook's orbit about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this feedback thing is not just something you experienced. It's baked into our culture. So there are posters on the walls of the office. And again, this is in the before times when you could go in the office that said feedback is a gift. 
And there's a two-day training that employees take uh, that teaches them how to give and receive feedback. And major meetings end with requests for feedback. So this is baked in deeply into the Facebook culture. And I think what's important here, and I, I you know, I appreciate the idea of um, the the people being bad at giving feedback. So the training is important. But the other thing is that I don't think they look at feedback as a way to let you know where you stand, right? Which is most companies mm-hmm. are like, you give feedback so people aren't surprised in their review. And that to me is mm-hmm. like the most elementary form of feedback. Um, what's, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm, you know, some feedback is probably better than none. But like if that's your intent in this economy, something's off. What Facebook does is it has this culture of feedback. And again, I, like they talk about, I talked about how they have this training where you learn to give and receive feedback. And the reason is because they want ideas to be able to travel anywhere in the company right? Without barriers. So they want you to feel comfortable basically hearing anything from anybody else in the company and sharing anything with anybody else in the company, right? And so if you're encouraged to give your thoughts about a product to someone that's three levels ahead of you, uh, then, and and give your, your feedback about like something that you thought they said or something like that, then all of a sudden your ideas can travel to them. Whereas like if you, if you're like doing it just to let people know where they stand, you know, it's going to give them an idea of what's coming on the review, but it won't really encourage this um, cross-pollination of ideas. So to me, it's, mm-hmm. it's all about the culture of feedback inside Facebook is all about people not being afraid, people being encouraged to share their ideas with others, even if it's a difficult conversation. Uh, and they're even encouraged to share them with Zuckerberg. And feedback that's been given to Zuckerberg has actually helped the company uh, stay alive in a number of cases. Um, and so... That's what feedback is, I think, in Facebook. It's clear channels of communication and this idea that you just don't hold back, right? You don't keep things to yourself. If you're taught to share within the organization, that's where the ideas are going to reach decision makers. And I think they do it very well. Well, I was going to pick up on that because, you know, in most organizations, creativity is something that is actually called for but doesn't actually not wanted. Because when people do come up with ideas, they are um, shot down in varying forms of logic and disavowal. So, um, you know, it's easy to say create a culture where people aren't scared um, and aren't, aren't fearful. Um, and it sounds like even though they are really pushing at things and going very fast, all conditions where people could be quite scared, they, they seem to find a way of, of creating that, that sense of safety. What else do you think is going on there that allows people to, to do that? Because feedback inherently is quite difficult to receive. Um, how, how do you, what else, I mean, what else do you think is going on there that, that makes people feel confident to do that? Yeah, so I actually attended one of these uh, feedback seminars a full day, and uh, I wrote about it in the beginning of the Facebook chapter. And you're right, it's super difficult. Um, like I was like sitting in my seat even during a role play. And they're like, hey, do you want to come up and give feedback? And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> Don't make me do this. This is tough. This is hard. Uh, I think the answer to this one really is it just comes with, you know, you have to live it in practice, right? You mentioned that a lot of companies say we value creativity and they don't live that, right? And that's really the truth. Most people come into new jobs with full of excitement and, you know, vigor and tremendous amount of ideas, tremendous amount of creativity, Right. We could do this. We could improve this process. We could, hey, why don't we work with this company? Hey, I have a friend you know, who does this. Maybe he can help us. You want me to bring him in to speak? And I would say probably 95% of the companies, you know, 
everybody reacts kind of weirdly to that. They're like, oh, a new guy's got a lot of energy. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, and after about six months of being told, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, but not having any follow-up or being like, no, we actually really need you to work on this project we assigned you. Those people right. are basically taught not to bring ideas anymore by the leaders. And so I don't think there's a secret sauce inside Facebook uh, that's created this, this um, uh, openness and trust for people to share ideas. I really just think it's the practice of the leaders uh, who are actually just going in every day. And when they have employees who are coming with the energy and ideas and suggestions, they're like, okay, well, that's a good idea. Let's give it a shot. You know, and like, oh, you should actually go build that or here's a team. And I know it's mm -hmm. like they have like almost unlimited resources. So that's easy to say, but like you have an idea, it's good. Here's a team, go build it. And, um, and yeah, so it just comes into the practice. I mean, at the end of the day, there are some things that like there's no secret sauce or system. It's about just doing it day in and day out. And I think being receptive to feedback, being receptive to open ideas is one of those things. Uh, we talked briefly about Microsoft uh, a little while ago, but I'd love to come back and, and hear a little more because um, I found that such a compelling chapter on the sort of uh, trajectory and experience of what Microsoft has gone through over the last several years. Um, can you can you speak about that for our listeners? Because it's such an it's such an important piece of mindset, I guess, is what I'm what I'm going to take us to afterwards. But yeah, that'd be great. So we'll pick up our story in the Balmer years, where Microsoft was milking this Windows asset pretty big. And then it start, we start transition to this mobile and uh, cloud world. And there was actually a debate inside Microsoft where they said, do we want to build for the future state or do we want to milk this asset? Because when you build for mobile, you cannibalize Windows, unless Windows is the mobile operating system and that didn't work out very well, right? But you want to keep yourself in a desktop world if you're the desktop operating system. Question, do we build for mobile? Do we make our products available on mobile? Do we build infrastructure for people who want to create stuff on mobile? And then they asked, do we want to build for the cloud, right? And the cloud is just basically propping up applications on the browser versus installed on a desktop. And if you build for the cloud, then you cannibalize Windows because if you have a great set of programs that work, you know, on any browser, you can use them on a Windows machine or Chromebook or Apple. And so Microsoft resisted this change, this move into the future for a long time. And in fact, one story in the book, I feel like I'm giving them all away, but that's fine. Um, one story in the book is that uh, they, they were uh, battling Google. The reason why Microsoft is no longer the web browser that we use anymore is because they were the leading web browser. They had Internet Explorer and they saw Google created, you know, Word for the web ended up being Google Docs. Excel for the web ended up being Google Sheets. PowerPoint for the web. Google Slides. And they said, do we want to enable something that's going to compete with our set of products or do we want to protect our products? And what they actually did was they took the team that worked on Internet Explorer down to maintenance mode. So they literally stopped improving. You know, they were, they were the dominant browser. They literally kept the internet slow. <laughs> so Google wouldn't be able to attack their products wow. in office. And then Google's basically like, Mozilla gave it a shot. Okay, nice try guys. And then Google with its engineering power was like, basically like F this, we're building our own browser. And that's why a lot of people use Chrome today. Uh, mm. Chrome, the whole idea was make it fast. Uh, so this was Microsoft was in this like real asset milking, protect the fort mentality. And it looked great. It looked just like Apple looks today. You know, great balance sheet, <laughs> profits coming through the, you know, 
coming through every door. And then, uh, and then you know, you, we, we quickly transitioned into a mobile and cloud-first world. And Microsoft really, really quickly went from dominant Death Star to a joke. I mean, this is probably like the fastest company transformation from a company everybody's afraid of to a company everybody makes fun of in history, right? right. It just went that quick, that quickly. Um, and and so, so what happened was Satya Nadella comes in and the reason why he was appointed, and Balmer does get some credit because he gave Nadella room to work and build the future inside Microsoft. But Satya comes in and he says, enough with this protecting the asset stuff. We're building for the future under me. We're building for cloud. We're building for mobile. And if we don't get this right, we're toast. Uh, and he reoriented the entire company towards building for the future state instead of milking the asset. And very famously, well, I guess maybe famously for nerds like me, uh, he, uh, he shows up to his first made presentation in its office working on an Apple device. Back in the Balmer years, you couldn't even bring an Apple device into Redmond. So Nadella coming in with an Apple device is like pretty interesting. You know, so to, it's, a, it's a symbol to his employees. We're cross-platform now. We're not the Windows company. We're all about building for mobile and cloud. And by orienting the business that way, and it wasn't just like a strategy, but a culture. You had to change Microsoft's culture because Microsoft was really in an asset milking, you know, Windows Windows guys are the gods in this company to all of a sudden other things matter. Reorienting the mindset, changing the culture inside. Uh, he's been able to take Microsoft in a brand new direction and it's worked really well. I mean, you look at the company's market cap now, which is all expectation on the future growth and it's doing really well. It's selling Azure again. You know, it's respected again in the business world. I just, uh, I wonder if they're going to buy TikTok and that might, you know, blow it up for them because it's, it's mm. kind of gotten under <laughs> shady means. But, um, but yeah, overall, site has done a, a, a good job uh, showing exactly, basically creating a case study for why leading a company with this always day one mindset or some might call it a growth mindset. Um, you know, that has uh, definitely been the key to Microsoft's success under him. You, you know, and I talked earlier in the week, and you, you had a kind of a, a, a at a Microsoft um, meeting. You had a bit of an epiphany. Do you recall that for us? Yeah. So this was the month nine of writing the book. I had just taken nine months off and written probably fifty thousand words. I had written the Amazon chapter, written the Facebook chapter, written the introduction. And I had the basic premise down, uh, but I don't think I really knew exactly what was going on with these companies until I had this meeting with Susan Athey, who's a professor at Stanford University. We met in her office, and she used to be the former chief economist of Microsoft. And she, and she was the chief economist under Balmer and was responsible for some of the economic analysis that helped Microsoft see the trade-offs between building for the future and then thinking about protecting the asset. And I don't, I, and she very clearly illustrated to me what it was like for a big company like Microsoft to make this decision between building, protecting its asset and building for the future. And I just kind of sat back and I was like, okay, I get it now. It's only when these companies are willing to reinvent versus protect that they're going to be successful. And then, it was almost like everything fell into place there. You look at the Amazon example, you look at the Facebook example. I mean, Facebook has reinvented itself, you know, a number of times from an online directory to a broadcast platform you use to 
you know, put an announcement out to everybody you know. Now it's a really a company that's all about intimate communication and messaging and groups. Um, and these are three massive transformations that it's gone on to. So it, every moment it decided to protect the asset or build for the future, it chose build, to the, build for the future. And that's why it's successful. And so I like, <laughs> I had to go back. I was a reporter at BuzzFeed at the time. This was before I started uh, big technology. And I had to go back to the office the next day, literally the next day. Like I took off uh, the Monday and the Tuesday. I was back reporting on the companies, um, you know, for daily, daily news stories. And I was just like, <laughs> it was one of these epiphany moments where like my mind was just like, now think about what Susan Athey said and I'll apply it here. And I think it, and it like really, uh, really connected on, on almost every level. And then so that I went back, I was at BuzzFeed for like two and a half months and then I took two, two more months to finish up uh, the edits uh, and, and writing on the book. And I basically had to go and write it through <laughs> almost a second time uh, and be like, now here's how it connects here and how it connects here. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, we had already chosen the always day one title. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I think that we just like thought it was like a cool thing Bezos said. And I think just by some stroke of luck, it actually became like a really profound, uh, mm -hmm. at least to me, uh, uh, sort of encapsulation of the way that these companies operate. So it was pretty cool. And it's one of the things like when you run, you write a book, I mean, I don't know, it was my first book. So who knows how much I can actually speak to this, but like there's something valuable about just keeping an open mind and being able to say even late in the process, maybe I'll have a discovery that changes this thing. And certainly did after that meeting with Susan Athey. You shared so many great stories and there's so many um, lessons for, for all of us to take from those stories. Um, and at the end of your book, you, you talk specifically about the leader of the future. Um, so I, I, we can glean a lot from everything that's been talked about today, but can you explain to our audience uh, more about what you think that is and how somebody who's listening right now might start to grow themselves to become that leader of tomorrow? Totally. I mean, I think that like the first part of it, and, and so for the leader of the future chapter, I actually went back to college and I was like, uh, hey, it's been 15 years, but like, you guys want to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. the, the stuff that I found in Silicon Valley and maybe we can like see if, and I found out that like a lot of them um, were thinking about a lot of the same stuff. So it was like kind of interesting to like riff on it with some of the professors who had taught me about the world of work as they saw it, you know, before, you know, the tech boom had really occurred. I mean, that we, we were definitely right. living in a tech economy, but not to the same extent. Um, and so, yeah, that was pretty, it was pretty interesting. Um, I, to me, like, what does the leader of the future look like? Um, you know, it's pretty simple. You appreciate ideas from wherever they come from, use technology to help create room for it. Um, you care not only about your company, but what's going on in society. Try to push it towards, towards good. And um, I think that like, we also need our leaders to care a lot about our education system, because if we're going to move into the world uh, where we're living in, uh, uh, ideal work, then our current education system is one that's built entirely for execution work. And so mm. even business leaders need to, need to like take an interest in this. And, and, you know, I don't think they need to come up with the answers, but should be part of the process of figuring out, uh, you know, maybe it's just lending, you know, lending advice to the, the current, you know, institutions that run the education systems. Here's how the work world works. Here's how we think today. You know, do you want to build, you know, a system that makes sense for this? Uh, because our education, we need a good education system and one that matches the reality on the ground. 
inside companies today uh, if we're going to be able to create a workforce that's going to be able to keep up with the change. If we if we zoom out just even a bit further, one of the things that you, you're talking about is our capitalism needs to evolve to keep it healthy with the dominant power of these these tech giants um, and the the data that they're gathering and the dependencies they're creating across supply chains and and in our lives personally. Um, and and you talked about how um, we we as individuals as consumers can perhaps work together. To create a new type of market economy where we where we where we can hold them accountable and we can actually drive some of their behaviors. You can talk a little bit about your, your ideas in that that area. Yeah, this is something that's come up after the book, um, but I I feel like yeah I'll, I'm going to work to get the I'm working to get the word out on this one a little bit. But um, one of the most interesting things that I found uh, when reporting on these companies is how much they care about the feedback from their users and customers. You know, Amazon's number one value is customer obsession. They're obsessed with their customers. But up until now, customers have just spoken with their wallets. And what that's shown is, you know, we've basically shown to Amazon what customer obsession should mean is get us a package as fast as you can. doesn't matter what you do to the people along the way. It doesn't matter what you do to your suppliers. And I think that what we're going to start to see is customer lobbies that are going to actually organize and go to these companies and be like, you're big, you know, you have a lot of influence, not only on, uh, on us, but like on the lives of many of our fellow citizens. And as your customers, if you want to be obsessed with us, here's some things we'd like you to consider, right? Like if you think about the government, government is citizen obsessed, right? Like we, we elect officials and they have to be obsessed with, you know, what our issues are. And then hopefully find, you know, democracy is imperfect, but find some ways to see those ideas through in policy. But, you know, they don't answer to anyone except for their customers at the end of the day. So what I want to see is customers gather together and lobby these companies to treat their suppliers better and to treat their workers better. And once they see that there is momentum from their customers to make these changes, if they're actually customer obsessed They'll have no choice but to do it, um, and I think that like we're de- like all this happened really fast, right? Amazon's added like four hundred thousand employees since I started working on the book, uh, so and that wasn't too long ago. So this has all happened in, with incredible speed, unchecked, which happens a lot with technology. And I do think we're going to start seeing the checks come in, and to me, a customer lobby that goes to Amazon and says, "This is what we want, and here's who's part of it." is the only way we're actually going to see change inside the company uh, to be able to treat those it works with better, which will eventually create a stronger middle of the economy. And as we know, you know, having a strong top of the economy is unstable and unhealthy. A strong middle of the economy is where societies are actually strong. So the idea of being able to go out and create a business uh, and, uh, you know, and, and be able to create you know, a, a healthy, you know, smaller, mid-sized business that maybe employs a few people. That's what pushes the strength of the economy. Uh, and, you know, I think there can be an opportunity for a lot of uh, companies to create this type of things, you know, inside a platform like Amazon. Think about all the merchants that do well inside the company. But you speak with them and Amazon is a fierce competitor that's working to put them out of business at all times, right? And so I think that if we do have a, a situation where we end up, creating these, these customer lobbies and creating better situations 
for suppliers, for the merchants working on the platform, we might see the middle of the economy flourish and end up living in a healthier society versus one where we're in the middle of a deep recession and Jeff Bezos has added untold billions to his net worth, which doesn't really feel right to me at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I um, just would love to know a little bit more about um, your next venture, Big Tech, and encourage our listeners to sign up uh, to your um, your newsletter. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what you're hoping to um, you know to to do with it? Yeah, definitely. I'm pretty excited about it. So I left BuzzFeed after the bush after the book published, and decided to start my own little media company, uh, which I think some journalists are playing around with more than. They have been. I think there's this real understanding now that because of the tools that exist, you can actually create a sustainable mini media business on your own versus work underneath an umbrella. And to me, like that was super appealing. I felt like I had more to talk about uh, that. The book, the book had led me down some interesting directions. I was interested in exploring more and I could do that with full autonomy if I was running my own company. And I thought creating a relationship with readers through a newsletter was also something that could be extremely interesting. So I just said, okay, well, jump off the ledge and we'll see what happens and created uh, Big Technology. Uh, and Big Technology is my small media company. It consists of a newsletter, which you can find at bigtechnology.substack.com or just Google or Bing or go DuckDuckGo, Big Technology. Uh, and then you can sign up and get the emails. If you don't like them, you can unsubscribe. We make it easy. And uh, we are just launching a podcast. Uh, so if you type in Big Technology Podcast to the podcast app of choice, uh, you can uh, jump, jump on there and subscribe. And the idea of that podcast is basically to take conversations that are happening behind closed doors in the tech industry among reporters and bring them uh, out in the open. So uh, it's going to debut with a conversation with Casey Newton, who's another tech reporter, talking about like, is the tech press bad? There's been a lot of tech press, ba tech press bashing that's gone on recently. And so we decided to, you know, be a little introspective and see where that's coming from and see, you know, how can we improve and whether the um, criticism is merited. Um, and then there's another conversation with Zainab Tufekci, who's a leading uh, researcher on network social protests. So protest that starts from social media and uh, then moves into the streets. And that could be anything from, Occupy Wall Street to the Arab Spring. And right now we're seeing it with Black Lives Matter. And we talk a little bit about the journey. So Zainab and I were actually coincidentally together. Well, we weren't together. We were both in Gezi Park in Istanbul uh, in the middle of the uh, massive network protest that happened there. So we talk about the path of these protests from Gezi Park in 2013 to Black Lives Matter in 2020. And the next couple of guests are going to be Tim Bray, the VP who quit Amazon uh, to... Um, because they were firing whistleblowers and he quit in protest. And then Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box. So uh, I'm still getting my sea legs on the whole podcast thing, but it's, it's super fun. It seems like you guys enjoy it. So uh, if you guys have got any pointers, <laughs> I would definitely <laughs> welcome. Well, I think, you're, I think you're already getting into your groove here. I mean, you're passionate about what you're doing and you've got great connections. And uh, I think uh, you've, You've, you've tapped into something which is obviously part of our zeitgeist with a fresh uh, perspective on it. And, you know, that's fascinating. I think for our, our um, audience, we're trying to, to understand kind of what's next for, for leadership. Um, and 
the the kind of inventive organization that's solving the world's biggest problems is certainly something that we're very excited about. And um, so hopefully we'll get you back on in the future to find out what more you've learned and how you're doing with uh, with big technology. But for now, Alex, we wanted to say thank you. It's been fantastic. Um, Scott? Absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you for for sharing all those stories. And, and for our listeners, if you think that he's given away everything, he, he by no means has. This book, um, I can't say it enough. I sat down, read it in just two sittings, uh, and I'm going to go back again and again because as somebody who uh, studies leadership and cultures and their impact on productivity, this is just rich with with a story and information. And so wh- wherever you are in your uh, career, if you're a leader of any kind, I, I really can't recommend always day one enough. Thanks guys. Thank you, this Alex. has really been a blast. Appreciate you having me on. And to our listeners, the world is evolving. Are you? 